Hi, this is Michael Waits, and welcome back to the Asia Tech Podcast. I want to thank True Digital Park for letting me record here again today. I'm telling you, this place does not get any less amazing. Today, I'm joined by UC Salavara, a co-founder of Antler and its managing partner for Asia. UC, thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show. I really appreciate it. How are you doing today? I'm great, Michael. Thanks for having me. It's <laughs> awesome. Can you just give the listeners a quick background on you for context? Absolutely. So I'm Yusu Yusu Salavara. I'm from Finland originally. As you mentioned, one of the co-founders of Antler. I have sort of three legs to my um, background prior to Antler. I started out in investments, worked in the in the um, largest investor in Finland, a pension insurance fund. Um, also dabbled a bit in M&A banking uh, back in the day. Then um, I had a five-year stint at uh, McKinsey. Uh, advising high-tech and telecom clients in Europe, predominantly. That's, by the way, also where I met my uh, co-founder, our CEO, Magnus uh, Grimeland. So it's sort of relevant to the story. Yeah. And then I uh, then I left and uh, worked in high-tech as an executive uh, at Nokia on the network side. I, I had a couple of roles. One was in product management, and the other one was uh, the more commercial topics. Uh, always in global roles, so a lot of travel, working with global telecom uh, clients. But end of the day, it's a, it's a high tech company. Yeah. When when were you at Nokia? Uh, this was from 2014 to early 2018. Wow, must have been a fascinating time to be there. Absolutely, absolutely. But I had I'd also worked with them previously, and uh, certainly a, a fascinating transition that company has gone through. Yeah, I mean, at some point it was sitting on the top of the mobile phone business and it looked like it was almost untouchable. But things happen, right? Exactly. Things happened and also the, the renewal of the business into a networks business that is thriving to this date is, is quite remarkable. I think that's part of the story about Nokia that goes untold, right? Is that everybody kind of still thinks about it as you know, a company that was in decline with a handset business that doesn't exist anymore, and yet it's out there running this thriving network business that's out there cranking out cash again, right? It's pretty impressive, actually, and that's hard to do. Exactly, exactly, and uh, I think it's uh, a testament to the uh, leadership style and the overall, overall sort of resilience of the company, of course, combined with good M&A strategy, as well, but you know, not that many people know that it's uh, today. It's a company of a uh, hundred thousand employees with you know twenty twenty plus billion euros of revenue. Jesus. So it's uh, it's certainly a big company, but it's not consumer facing that much. So you know, most people don't even know about it. They just remember the handset business and and they're, they assume Nokia is dead. Exactly, which it's not. We're going to get back to this in in a little bit, right? Because I want to talk about what drives success for a company's sustainability, right? Not just making it big once, but just being able to sustain that bigness over time, right? And Nokia is a good example of that. But before we get to that, I wanted to ask you, like, what inspired you and your partners to help innovators and entrepreneurs? What was the idea? What a great question. So let me actually start with my personal angle to that. Okay. To complement the previous uh, answer, because... I was working quite a bit with startups um, on the side, advising, mentoring, also investing. Mm -hmm. And 
I then realized that uh, this is where my passion lies. I want to contribute more to, to the startup ecosystem. I wanted to start building something on my own. But I, I struggled actually with something after fixing, which is how do you actually find a co-founder? Right. I had a very high quality bar and I couldn't really uh, find a co-founder that you know, suits my needs. And, and that's where I reconnected with Magnus, who's an old colleague from the McKinsey days. And he had just started thinking about the topic of Antler, basically sustainably supporting talented individuals and becoming founders of companies. And I was immediately hooked. I was like, this is exactly the problem I've been struggling with myself. Why don't I actually uh, start building Antler with Magnus and uh, help uh, people more broadly with this platform? So we believe that Antler, as a platform helping uh, talented individuals found companies, get co-founders, get advice, get funding, will have tremendous impact, impact on the world end of the day. Because we are building Antler globally, aim to have 30 locations in just a few years, and then it's going to be an unparalleled platform to support entrepreneurs and to democratize entrepreneurship. There's so many things in there that I want to break down. You said 30 locations in the next few years, right? You already have eight. It's one of the things that you preach, it seems to me, as a firm to your founders, and that is this concept of speed and velocity, right? It's like, just go and do something and do it fast. Exactly. Yeah? But you're living the same thing. Do you know what I mean? Like you're setting sure. the example while you're showing the example. It's kind of cool. Exactly. Now, we practice what we preach. So we are a growth company ourselves, but we are helping companies grow and, and well basically we're generating the companies so we're a startup generator right and then we of course help them grow while we're also growing at the same time antler just sounds like a regular accelerator but actually if you dig a little bit deeper it's not like any other accelerator at all actually so how do you not, know, at, all. not at all though right so it's kind of weird i almost wish you guys had a different you know like name like antler something else because but again, like the Nokia business, people get a vision of what it is and what it was, and that just sticks in their mind, right? But I'm curious how you guys approach innovation in a way that's different from other accelerators. And the real follow-up for me is, how do you do the people-first thing where most of these companies do the idea-first, yeah? That seems like a big differentiator to me. No, exactly. So the whole philosophy is, you know, we're team-first, individual-first. We're talent company talent investors. So we start from finding talented individuals and getting them into a program where we team them up and we work with them to find the right idea. And then we help them build that idea further. And then we invest into the best ones and then we help them grow. So you know, in an ideal world, you obviously want to have a great idea and a great team. Right. Uh, but if you can't have that, a great team with a good idea will eat the team that is good but with a great idea for breakfast. Yeah, I mean, we used to say when I was at, at Goldman Sachs, right, that a good idea, a great idea in a bad market is still a bad idea because the market is what mattered. And a, and a so-so idea in a great market is a killer idea because the market's just going to flush it higher anyway, right? It feels yeah, like exactly. the same thing. Exactly. So how do, you, how do you do this, though, right? In other words, tons of people probably apply to get in this program. What kind of attributes are you looking for 
when people come into the program. And the other question is, is it different in your other locations or is it basically the same globally? So it's so let me tackle that last question first. So it's it's largely the same. I mean, we constantly share lessons learned uh, across our regions. We have a very active internal community, constantly looking for ways to improve. Right. Uh, we also have interviewers uh, interview across regions, and uh, you know, it's just a, it's a torture wheel of development as well in a way. Um, but. Um, we look for drive and tenacity in the founders. We look for execution skills. We look for uh, problem-solving skills. We look for communication skills. And naturally, also, you need to have integrity and so forth. And all of this, we through, do a, through a very rigorous interviewing process and recruiting process where you go through self-assessment, you go through aptitude tests, developers go through uh, coding tests, there's then uh, phone screening with our recruiting team, then there's multiple interviews with partners, which include case solving, etc. Uh, wow. So it's a very rigorous process, and, and like you mentioned, interest has been high, so here in Singapore, for the next program, we've had uh, around 3,000 applications. Wow for um, 100 seats. So we're looking at around 3% pass-through rate. So it's not easy to get in and, and interest has been very high. And is it? do you see this differently across the globe or is it pretty much the same you said? It's pretty much the same. So the, so the kind of admission rate hovers between 3 and 6% in different regions. Got it. To date, we've had more than 12,000 applications uh, globally across the different regions. So, so, I mean, when you start a new region, it of course takes a bit of time to um, you know, get that word out there. And we've seen application numbers uh, increase as you have more and more uh, cohorts per region. But uh, basically all of the regions have had north of a thousand applications even for the first program. And the first program is typically a bit smaller, so we look for like 60, 70 founders. Right. And then we expand to a hundred for the second program. So that's, that's, the, that's the target size for the kind of run rate cohort. So. And what's the process like for founding, finding a co-founder, right? A lot of sort of investors will say, they don't like single founder companies just because there's no balance there. There's no, nobody to bounce stuff off of, right? How do you yeah. match people up with each other? You know what I mean? Like, are there mixers and like, how does that work? No, that's um, one of the most important elements of the program. So first of all, I mean, we of course need to make sure that the founders get to know each other. So we create the environment where they can socialize. We even start before the program starts by running some social events. We run, uh, in the first couple of weeks of the program, we run speed dating activities, other social activities, offsites with sort of fun and games type things. But then also very importantly, different sort of hackathons, we call them, where you build something in teams very fast to typically right. make it competitive. And all of this is geared towards maximizing the number of people you initially sort of work with to get a good sense of and uh, so that you get to experience the people and you start forming a hypothesis of who you can work with. And then the next phase is, 
you start actually testing that hypothesis. So after the first couple of weeks, you have these hackathons where you self-select the team, right? And then you build something with that team in competitive fashion. At the end, you publicly pitch, and then you know there's nothing like a competitive environment to bring <laughs> out the two true colors in people, you know. <laughs> and, and and then at the end of that, there's basically like a decision gateway, basically saying we continue building something together, we like the team, or we break up and look for a new one. And breakups, they're always celebrated. You know, uh, one of my um, favorite companies uh, coming out of Finland is uh, Supercell, right. this Tetracorn gaming company. Yep. And, and they have this uh, culture where, the, where the, the biggest celebration of the year is when a project fails. A gaming project fails, then they throw a big party. What's the idea there? Like, I think I get it, but what's the idea there? No, you really want to encourage risk-taking and, right. uh, yeah. um, you know, making sure no one is afraid to fail. And um, we we have this micro version of that where, like, you, you want to test also some uh, crazy thoughts on a team. And then if it doesn't work up, you, 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 you break up. You also, for our specific context, the, the, the worst thing that could happen is that some team gets together to work a bit and then someone who feels like this isn't working doesn't break up because there's some social pressure. Right, right. That's right. kind of the worst thing that could happen because in the longer term, it's never going to work out. So that those are sort of the kind of things we build in there. So if you take a step back, it's really about creating this environment where you can have an iterative process where the founders try different teams and then they navigate towards then having a team that they can work with longer term. So you work with tens of people before you land the right team. And of course, in the beginning, we, we directed a bit so that, you know, three coders don't work together and so forth and so forth. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, think about finding product market fit in the early days where it's all about experimenting and finding new things, getting feedback from your customers. There's something similar here. So you, you try different teams and then you start finding something that works. Yeah, I mean, team building to me in a way seems just like a really aggressive marriage, right? And yeah. part of that is dating. And I, I always like to use dating as a metaphor for other relationships because it's something that most people understand. Most people have been on a date or have dated somebody. And you make a really great point, though. Some people just don't break up because of social pressure, even though they know they should. Yeah, no, yeah, no, exactly. Here, right? So same thing. No, no, exactly, and um, there's another one. I think the analogy to dating is a good one, but anyone who's been on a date knows that you're basically selling a fantasy of mm, yourself, mm, mm. and and you need to get to that layer of cutting through the bullshit, bullshit. right? Yeah, exactly. And seeing the real, real, showing the real you, uh, and that's why we want to really create these intense conditions like having this hackathon where you work very intensely together so you get rid of that layer and, and immediately show the true colors like I mentioned before. I love this idea. It's like when you're dating when you're 25, you're just selling this fantasy of yourself and how great you are in relationships. And when you're dating when you're 50, you're just like, look, I want a partner, okay? <laughs> I'm not perfect, neither are you. What yeah. are we going to do? <laughs> exactly, exactly. Um, I want to talk a little bit about risk. It was a word you mentioned a little bit in passing earlier, but I'm curious about a bunch of things. How do you 
and, and I can give you an example of what I did once, but how do you judge whether someone's going to be good at sort of taking a risk and following on with the risk and how comfortable they are? And again, just back to this same topic, we're in Asia, right? You're in Singapore. I'm in Thailand. But do you see different risk appetites in your other locations than you see here? And how, how are they different? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, there's a, tons of different types of risks. Yep. One of the things I see here in Singapore and Southeast Asia is a somewhat lower appetite for technology risk. What does that mean? Um, so, it, so I feel like the appetite to go for um, a more technologically risky place is uh, is not as high as in other regions. Interesting. Um, so you know, uh, there's a lot of you know government schemes and other support to actually overcome that risk. Right, right, right. Uh, so there's co co-investment schemes. There's the different technology grants, and I think they are there. Uh, like if you think economic theory, they're obviously market anomalies. And why are they there? Well, they're there because you need them to get over this hump. So if you look at, uh, if you went to Silicon Valley and talked about all those mechanisms, they would look at you like you're crazy. <laughs> crazy, exactly. Yeah, crazy. Uh, so that's one of the things I see. And this is partly probably coming also from the fact that it's a region where pretty much all of the success cases are proven models from other regions. Right. And there's nothing wrong with it. Nope. It's just a characteristic of the market here. In other markets, we're going to see a different type of company. In our Stockholm pro program, we have a play utilizing satellite technology for something quite new in, in the sort of environmental sector. So it's, it's kind of, you, you see different type of risk appetite in different regions. Yeah, I would think so. Anne and I were actually having a conversation about that f offline earlier today. Just like, it just feels different in different countries when you're talking about risk-taking and also just about meeting people. I have this theory, like I never turn down a first meeting because I just don't know what I'm going to get from it. And that's when I start to decide whether I want to continue to meet that person, right? Again, it gets back to that dating thing. I, I don't know how it's going to go. But if I don't go on that meeting, I'm just giving up an opportunity in my mind, right? And I refine that sort of process over time. But that's I always kind of take the first meeting. Yeah, no, no, exactly. You got to turn those stones. I mean, you don't know what you're going to find. That's uh, that's actually my own philosophy as well. How do you how do you look at partnerships, not just locally but globally? In other words, again, I said this offline too, and I'll say it again. I don't think anybody succeeds alone, right? But how do you yeah. view those partnerships and how do you form those partnerships? And then again, how do you tell your cohort companies like this is important? Let me start by saying that partnerships are super valuable. They're super valuable in general for companies, for startups. They're yeah. super valuable for us. So if you think about Antler, we are building companies at scale. So, you know, every program we run takes Singapore will down the line when you have a hundred founders per cohort, you run two cohorts per year, right. it's gonna yield forty plus, four zero plus companies per year. So then thirty locations that I mentioned will mean more than a thousand companies. That is tremendous. It is. So you know talk about provider partnerships, talk about tapping into the knowledge of different corporations and different domains, different industries. 
Um, it's, it's simply tremendous. And we've started that now, so we're partnering with a number of corporations where they, for example, come in and provide their experts to, to as advisors for the different teams we have. They might come in and uh, present you know, problem statements that they face in their industry that one of the teams could start fixing as a project that then turns into a, into a great business mm-hmm. and so forth and so forth. So, you know, it's, it's almost like an endless potential for partnerships. It's, that's the same thing we again uh, preach to our startups. I mean, most startups will certainly benefit from, from partnerships in the ecosystem. I mean, if you can tap into, uh, into an existing player and, you know, you know, shortcut something you would need to build yourself, like, why do you? You should partner. So. Yeah, like instead of rebuilding your own distribution network, why not just use Gojex or something? I mean, yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, startups need focus, so you, they really need to find out, find the, the the niche where they are unique. What is their edge? What did they contribute? And everything else around that is just unnecessary hassle if you have to build it yourself fair enough you just reminded me of something and again this may be slightly out of context but i remember a few years ago all you know we heard about this idea about sort of index investing in the startup world and sort of 500 startups became the poster child for that for better or for worse yeah we can argue about that for sure but one of the things that they did was they kept saying that they were you know, we're opening something in Malaysia, we're opening something in Vietnam, we're opening something in Japan. And I, I don't think the rest of the world knew that those were kind of franchise models. In other words, they didn't own those businesses outright. They just sort of lent them the name and gave them a little bit of support. But you're doing it differently as well, right? Like you're owning all those businesses globally. Is that right? Or do I have that wrong? Yeah, so we are investing into all of those businesses. So we're, yes, we're owning all of the locations for sure. Okay. And then... So the way it's set up is that each location is is rolled out as part of uh, Antler, and then we are a VC investing, so meaning that each location has a fund, and um, that's how we make our investments. So how do you like? I just have this little note to myself: thirty countries. You said eighty cohorts, eighty cohorts, twice a year. It's over a thousand. How do you fund all that stuff? <laughs> no, that's a that's a great question. One minor detail: uh, it might be that we have some countries with multi uh, multiple locations, so I think it's third locations. But but in, so you, no no no. But your your macro question stands right. Yeah. So we have uh, publicly already announced announced last year sort of equity funding that we've gotten to the Antler uh, platform, mm-hmm. and uh, that's being utilized to launch these different locations. And then, uh, like I mentioned, every location is a, is a different fund. So we're, we're looking to build this global network, global company with, with of course, a, a significant AUM to fund businesses. So that's, that's kind of how the, how the machine is going to work. Fair enough. Are you already seeing network effects from the existing locations? Absolutely. There's, oh, there's just tremendous network effects. Yeah, let, let me give you a couple of examples. So, so here in Singapore, the first batch, we have, we have a company called Cognicept, which is operating in the robotics space. Okay. So uh, they have this solution to improve the reliability of smart robots with a human-in-the-loop solution. And uh, 
Uh, early on, they realized that most of their prospective customers are going to be in the U.S. So they have a, a great first client in Savio, which is a Google Ventures-backed backed, uh, startup, cool. which has, or well, maybe I shouldn't call them a startup, maybe a scale-up is better. But uh, they're based in, or they have an office in Singapore, which is how, how Cognizant got to them. But they realized that the U.S. is where they where they want to uh, operate, and uh, and they are right now actually on a business development trip to the U.S., tapping into our network, co-locating with us in uh, East Coast uh, U.S. in New York, in a new lab, which is our office there, tapping into our network, meeting clients. And, and this is something that would not be possible if we're just a local player here right. in Southeast Asia. Yep. Uh, so all of these sort of more globally oriented businesses will benefit tremendously from this. Then um, another company we have here in Singapore is called AirSims. It's basically a company building the world's first marketplace for eSIMs. So, you know, these new phone uh, models yep. don't have a physical SIM card anymore. They have an eSIM and um, these guys are building the, the, a marketplace around that. Uh, so they have been getting support from our global partnership, everyone with connections in telecom to connect with operators in Europe, in China, here in uh, Southeast Asia, and uh, also got the contact with the guy who's, who's uh, their angel investor. He, he founded a uh, telecom uh, group in Europe. So sort of tremendous value from, from that network. And maybe final example, one of our Singapore companies started out with the Philippines um, as their target market. Right. And uh, then as they started building, they realized that actually they want to pivot and start building their business, which is in the retail space in Australia. Okay, that's... Yeah, I mean, uh, long story behind that. <laughs> but, uh, but again, if we had nothing, it's quite a tough... Yeah, 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 it's really hard. But luckily, we have a Sydney office with a Sydney program with a full support network. So now they're there, co-located with us, tapping into our support from any, like from anywhere from admin to get into the country, to tapping into the local advisor network. And they've also been there to talk to the current cohort in Sydney share their experience from Singapore, yep. tap into the network of the cohort itself. It's just, I was actually just on the phone with the guys today and they found it tremendously valuable. Right, so you make another really great point, right? And you kind of alluded to this earlier, and that is whether you're doing your startup or generating your idea in Asia or in Europe or in the United States, at some point you have to decide where your biggest customers or at least where your initial customers. And I think your idea is just go to them Regardless of yes. where you think you're based, go to where your most likely clients are and then build there. Yeah? Absolutely. That's unique too, I think. Yeah. No, so, so for us, the, the location of the cohort is a centralization point for bringing the founders in, running the program, running the kind of matching, the coaching, etc. But... As soon as the first phase is over, right. which is sort of two, 10 weeks before they start reinvest and they start building, as soon as that is over, we tell them to go where the customers are. Yeah. I mean, building startups in a way remote 
that's not you know, a recipe for success. No. <laughs> and so we have portfolio companies out of the Singapore program in Indonesia, the Philippines, Thailand, but also, well, now this one in Australia, in India, etc., etc. So it's kind of, they need to go where the business is. Yeah, it's a great idea. Look, I was going to ask you about the cohort that you did in January, but we've kind of touched on that already. What I really want to know about is the future, right? So you've got a really important demo day coming up. What is it, the first week of July? Correct. It's uh, July 4th. Uh, it's going to be 19 companies. Um, so that's the, that's the second cohort out of Singapore. And uh, super excited about that one. Yeah, I was going to say, do you want to mention anything specifically about what's happening, what your demo days are like? I'm, I'm curious because I want to understand what that, what that pitching thing is like. I mean, I've been going to demo days for almost 10 years now. I'm just curious what yours is like. So what we do is it's obviously all about the founders. You know, when you bring 19 teams um, to pitch, we do a four-minute pitch format. We just introduce ourselves in the beginning, remind everyone that these are companies that got together or where the founders got to know each other a few months ago. It's basically five, six months ago. And, uh, you know, they've, without exception, been able to achieve great things. So it's good to remind people of that. So once we've done that, it's all about the founders. So they do four-minute pitches after that. We just create the environment where people can go and talk to the the teams. Every company has a booth. You can go to them, uh, mingle a bit over drinks and food. And uh, that's kind of it. And obviously, you can book uh, follow-up meetings with the the companies via a web platform we have. And um, on top of this, we're, of course, recording all of this so you can watch it afterwards. And we're also going to live stream it so even people who can't make it can still watch uh, locally it, right? can still watch yeah absolutely. how many people do you expect to be there physically potential investors uh, around 500 uh, we have capacity for a bit more so uh, hopefully even more where are you doing it we're doing it this time at the school of the arts SOTA in Singapore okay wow that's really ambitious well look this has been an amazing conversation I still have a whole other list of questions, but I'm going to save them for the next time you and I talk to each other. I just want to say thank you for, for doing this with me today. Hopefully this is not the last time you and I talk to each other. I'm, I'm sure it won't be. Thanks for having me, Michael. It's been a pleasure.